Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Riders of Knickerbocker. Published in 1912 and written by Hamilton Wright Maybe, this story looks at New York when it was still a new city during the 1800s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a huge thank you to new patron on Patreon, Steve M. Potter. I am truly grateful for your contribution to the show. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone and it's the support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you appreciate the podcast and are in a position to support the show with a monthly contribution, please consider visiting boytosleep.com It is those monthly subscriptions that help keep the lights on and the podcast going. Spotify have made it really easy to do. If you click on the show notes and then click on support this podcast, you can find a way to support the podcast really easily. And of course, Patreon is the other option. One of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast, of course, though, is hearing from all of the listeners who found the podcast beneficial with allowing them to get rest. Thank you to iTunes listener, Amateur Artist 118, for your kind review. And apologies if there was music in an episode that you heard. 
please feel free to contact me via the website so I can take a closer look for you. And to Audible listener on the Australian app, James, thank you for offering to play this at a seminar. I assume you would like to lull all of the audience to sleep. And Carly M., Thank you so much for your beautiful message via the website. I am honored to know how much the podcast is helping you and your daily routine. And to all Spotify listeners who left a comment in the episode Q&A, thank you. On the most recent episodes, thank you to Joseph, Miss Manda 30, Zoe, Najer George, Page, Kaylee McNeil, and J. Bromland Art. Hearing from everyone via Spotify is great, and I appreciate you and all listeners who reach out. If you do find the podcast beneficial, please be sure to subscribe, and of course, share it with a friend who may also need a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Writers of Knickerbocker, New York by Hamilton Wright, maybe. In these days, when New York has become a metropolitan city with a population of four million souls and the old city has shrunk politically into the borough of Manhattan. It is not easy to recall the obliterated outlines of the town which was satirized by the vivacious young men who wrote the Salmagundi papers. Unlike Rome, which has been rebuilt half a dozen times on its early site and largely out of its old materials, so that the city of today is a kind of palimpsest in stone, brick and mortar. New York has grown by the process of destruction and has become metropolitan through successive stages of self-effacement. Here and there, one comes upon a building which has survived from the late colonial period but no structure now standing bears witness to the taste or lack of taste of the Dutch settlers, and the streets preserve no traces of the old lanes and highways, save an occasional name as misleading descriptively as the Bowery. Canal Street is as stolid a reminiscence of a water channel as is the heavy warehouse frontage of Grub Street of the humorous or tragic traditions of literary Bohemia in the days of Mr. Pope and Dr. Johnson. New York has changed its form almost as often as, according to the physiologists, men change their bodies. It has kept certain characteristics which marked its youth and predicted the traits of its maturity. But its growth has been so great that the divergences between the latest and the earliest city seem to be differences in kind, rather than in degree. 
the New York in which Washington Irving was born in April 1783 was still in the possession of British troops, who withdrew six months later, leaving a half-ruined city behind them. The population had been reduced from 20,000 to 10,000, shipping had deserted the captive town, and the wharves were rotting from disuse, streets which had been opened before the war to afford room for growth, were desolate and forlorn. With that overgrowth of straggling weeds, which is the final evidence of neglect, Many public and private buildings, which had been used for military purposes, were falling in ruins. The Great Fire of September 1776 had left a large part of the western side of the little city a mass of ruins, and Broadway from Bowling Green to Trinity Church was a dreary waste of blackened walls and heaps of rubbish. There was no money in the city treasury, and the once-growing town was apparently blighted. Other cities had been more active in the struggle for independence. None had suffered more severely from the devastation of war. In June 1787, wrote Samuel Breck, On my return from a residence of a few years in France, I arrived at that city, New York, and found it a neglected place, built chiefly of wood and in a state of prostration and decay. A dozen vessels in port, Broadway from Trinity Church, inclusive, down to the Battery, in ruins owing to a fire that had occurred when the city was occupied by the enemy during the later part of the war. The ruined walls of the houses, standing on both sides of the way, testifying to the poverty of the place five years after the conflagration, for although the war had ceased during that period, and the enemy had departed, No attempt had been made to rebuild them. In short, there was silence and inactivity everywhere. Mr. Breck was mistaken about the date of the fire, but his description of the desolate city was accurate. In these depressing conditions, New York did not give itself up to gloomy misgivings. It had always been a cheerful, social community, and it was not long in recovering its prosperity and high spirits. Six years after the close of the war, it was the capital of the United States. The population had more than doubled. Ships were in the harbour. Grass no longer gave the streets a rustic aspect and the tide of activity had reached the highest point in its history. There were nearly 24,000 people living south of Reed Street on the west and of Pike Street on the east, 
a swamp arrested the growth of the town along the East River. The houses were mainly of English architecture, though peaked roofs and gable ends to the street recalled the good old days of Dutch Dominion, when a canal ran through Broad Street and broad-stern Dutch vessels lay at anchor in the centre of the town. Politics ran high, and during elections language was used with far less restraint than at present. The first man sent to Congress from New York under the recently adopted National Constitution was Mr. John Lawrence, and a letter published in the Daily Advertiser in March 1789 contains the following frank statement. Of all the men who framed that monarchical, aristocratical, oligarchical, tyrannical, diabolical system of slavery, the New York Constitution, one half were lawyers. Of the men who represented, or rather misinterpreted, this city and county in the late convention of this state, to whose wicked arts we may safely attribute the adoption of that diabolical system, seven out of the nine were lawyers. And what crowns the wickedness of these wicked lawyers is that a great majority of them throughout the state are violently opposed to our good and great head and never-failing friend of the city and city interests, the present governor. Beware, beware, beware of lawyers. Very pleasant things were said about the New York of 1789, when, at the end of a three-month session of the United States Congress, it was announced that only one member had been ill. After commenting on its nearness to the ocean and the sweetening of its air by abundant verdure, a charming picture is evoked by the statement that the residents on the west side of Broadway are saluted by fragrant odours from the apple orchards and buckwheat fields in blossom on the pleasant banks of the Jersey Shore. The little city was already charged with extravagance and frivolity, and the details of these offences are not lacking. One reads of blue satin gowns with white satin petticoats, large Italian gauze handkerchiefs with satin border stripes worn about the neck, completed by a headdress of poof of gauze in the form of a globe, the headpiece of which was made of white satin having a double wing, in large plates and trimmed with a large wreath of artificial roses. There were shoes of blue satin adorned by rose-coloured rosettes and muffs of wolfskin with knots of scarlet ribbon. The gentlemen of the period were arrayed with equal splendour, bottle green, pearl, scarlet, 
purple, mulberry, and garnet were among the colours of clothes advertised by a local tailor on Hanover Square, while waistcoats fairly glowed with brilliant hues and brocaded and spangled buttons. Beaver and caster hats were in vogue, and superior boots were made by Mr. Thomas Garner of Pearl Street, whose proud claim to the patronage of the fashionable was that he had worked for the first nobility in England. It cost approximately $75 to dress a lady's hair every day in the year. And there were dentists who pulled the teeth of the poor gratis between the hours of six and nine on the mornings of Monday and Thursday. The sociability and hospitality of the city made a deep impression on Noah Webster, who was also struck by the absence of affectation and of local snobbery. Lectures appear to have been few in number and serious in theme. The city, which took its pleasures comfortably, took its opportunities of enlightenment sparingly, and in a heroic temper. There appears to have been but one candidate on the lecture platform for public approval in this field during the winter of 1789, and he is described as a man more than 30 years an atheist. The lecture was delivered at Aaron Orson's Tavern, and tickets were to be had from the alderman. The play enjoyed greater popular favour, but the John Street Theatre was without competition until 1798, when the Old Park Theatre was opened. During the season of 1789, William Dunlap put several homemade American dramas on the stage. He was the prolific author of 49 plays, which stand to the credit of his industry, if not his genius. These dramas were the premature births of the genius of the American stage, and none of them survives. They were very faint prophecies of the interesting dramatic movement now in progress, but one of them, Darby's Return, achieved the rare distinction of evoking a laugh from Washington, an occurrence so unusual that it stimulated a writer in the Daily Advertiser to report it in the most stately English. Our adored ruler seemed to unbend and for the moment give himself to the pleasures arising from the gratifications of the two most noble organs of sense, the eye and the ear. The musical society gave an occasional recital, and there were subscription concerts under the management of local music teachers. The young gentleman at Columbia College 
were delivering commencement orations on the progress and causes of civilization and on the rising glory of America. There were nine publishers and booksellers in the city, and in the year of Irving's birth, one of them announced the first American novel under the portentous title The Power of Sympathy or The Triumph of Nature. The Society Library, disrupted by the war, was re-established and a circulating library organised. William Dunlap, the playwright, painted portraits and, later, became one of the founders of the National Academy of Design. Mr. Edward Savage and Mr. Joseph Wright followed the same profession, and Washington sat for all three. The city was kept informed of events by five newspapers. A magazine had been born prematurely and expired after a brief and unimportant life. The journalistic style of the day was of an eloquence that is happily illustrated by a description of one of the barges which escorted Washington on his voyage across the bay to New York to attend his inauguration. The voices of the ladies were as much superior to the flutes that played with a stroke of the oars in Cleopatra's silken-corded barge as the very superior and glorious water scene of New York Bay exceeds the Sidness in all its pride. The two-story house in which Irving was born at number 131 William Street, about halfway between Fulton and John Streets, was pulled down ten years before his death, and the house directly across the street in which he spent his childhood has shared its fate. The latter was larger and afforded greater facilities for boyish gymnastics. There were front and rear buildings with a narrow structure between which was hardly more than a passage and it was from the sloping roof at the rear that Irving made his perilous descents when he set out to enjoy the forbidden pleasures of the John Street Theatre. George William Curtis tells a delightful story of a boy in Philadelphia whose father, like the elder Irving, was of a very serious turn of mind and who, by way of youthful reaction, secretly frequented the forbidden playhouse. John said the father, Is this dreadful thing true that I hear of thee? Has thou been to see the play-actress Frances Kemble? Yes, father. I hope thee has not been more than once, John. Yes, father. Was the honest, if somewhat discouraging answer, more than thirty times. The easy-going temper of the metropolis to which Irving was to give a lasting expression 
is still further indicated by the story that in order to escape the rigid requirements of his father's Presbyterian faith, the boy had himself confirmed in Trinity Church. His temper was genial and kindly, and the mingled sentiment and humour which were to give his books a quality American writing had lacked so far, made him a loiterer and an observer, rather than an arduous and methodical student. New York was the gateway to the beautiful country of Dutch settlement and tradition on the banks of the Hudson, and the gun and fishing rod were the instruments of exploration with which the boy who was to write the legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle carried his discoveries into the heart of a region in which it was always afternoon. He had read Orlando Furioso and had played the night with great fire and gallantry in the backyard on John Street. He had surreptitiously saved candle ends and read the moving adventures of Sinbad and Robinson Crusoe in forbidden places and at improper hours, and the thirst for travel was on him. He wandered about the pierheads when he should have been poring over textbooks and watched lessening sails with eager desire to fare with them to the ends of the earth. He was, in a word, taking the course in romance, adventure, and dreaming which boys of his temperament and genius have elected from the beginning of time to the sore but fortunate disappointment of their elders. His brothers went through Columbia College, but he went up to the Hudson and discovered to the imagination the river which Hudson had discovered to the eye. Diedrich Knickerbocker was last seen, it will be remembered, by the passengers in the stage for Albany. The literary temperament in Irving was not without the confirmation of the literary impulse, and while he was still in his teens, he began to try his hand at social satire, a form of literature which is practised only by men of city breeding and interest. In the Morning Chronicle, of which his brother Peter was editor and proprietor, he published, in 1802, a series of short papers dealing with the fashions and foibles of the town, after the manner of the spectator and tattler, and especially with the manners of the actors and their auditors. They were boyish performances, but they showed sensibility and humour, and a chivalrous attitude toward women. Irving's health, which had been uncertain, was established by a residence of two years in Europe, where he saw countries and peoples with infinite zest, not only in the picturesque old world, but in the range and variety of character 
the broad contrasts, the mingled tragedy and comedy of life in a more highly organised society. I am a young man and in Paris, he wrote to a friend at home, and he was happy in a wholesome appetite for a more picturesque and vivid life than he had enjoyed in the little provincial city at the mouth of the Hudson. When he returned in 1806, it was to find a group of companions whose knowledge of the great world was less than his, but who were equally ready for work or for mischief in a little provincial city which had developed what may be called a town consciousness. It was still bounded on the north by Anthony and Hester Streets, Greenwich Village, a pleasant suburban village through which Christopher Street now passes, was a place of refuge for the plague for families fleeing from the city. The state prison was there, and there were faint streets budding in the adjacent farms. Broom Street had been laid out, Astor Place and Greenwich Street, Mr Jarvis tells us, were lanes. The latter had attained the dignity of a fashionable drive, and opulent citizens drove out to Greenwich Village on pleasant afternoons, as today they motor to West Point or Peekskill. The seats of fashion were to be found on the Battery, which would have remained the most delightful locality for residents in New York if the people of the metropolis had not conceived a repugnance to living in near proximity to business quarters. Lower Broadway, Upper Pearl and Nassau Streets were of high respectability and Broadway had been paved as far as the city hall. Beyond lay charming country roads, occasional country houses to which the leading families retreated from the summer heat, and thrifty farms whose owners were happily ignorant of the enormous future values of their fields. The American imagination, which has since built so many cities overnight in the newer sections of the country, did not slumber However, even in a city in which Dutch reluctance to move faster than the fact was so large a factor, and a map made by Mangin in 1803 carries the Boston Road far north through a network of superstitious streets that lay across the broad fields owned by Mr. Bayard, Mr. Rutgers, Mr. Lespenard, Mr. De Paster, and other well-known citizens and obliterates as by magic the swamp, the collect, or fresh water pond, and the salt meadows of the earlier maps. The collect was not, however, so easily dealt with. It was a marsh lying across the island from Roosevelt's slip to the Hudson, at what is now the foot of Canal Street. The focal point of this marsh was a pond, 
which found an outlet through the swamp where leather has had its shrine these many years, and whence the first Brooklyn Bridge takes its flight over the East River. The swamp had been drained, and the water from the pond flowed along the course of the present Canal Street, but the pond was still to be disposed of. It was very deep, and it was proposed at one time to connect it with the two rivers by canals, which would have made New Amsterdam reminiscent of old Amsterdam, but it was finally filled in by levelling the high ground, and adventurous youths and maidens, who had been accustomed on pleasant afternoons, to venture into the country beyond the city hall, lost a convenient excuse for Sabbath day excursions. It is amusing to find a pleasure garden bearing the old world name of Rainley on the older maps, and old Vauxhall, which stood originally at the corner of Warren and Greenwich streets, in a house built by Sir Peter Warren, was also a public garden, patterned after its famous original in London, and kept by Sam Francis, at one time a steward in the employ of Washington. Later, this pleasure ground covered the section between Broadway and the Bowery of which the Astor Library was the centre. The chief cattle market was on the Bowery somewhat south of the garden. There were various roadhouses along the East River, where oysters and turtles were cooked with great skill. Fishing and water parties in summer and sleighing parties in winter found the best of fare in these houses. It was the day of the old-fashioned chase, and there was a bridge on the Boston Post Road at about 3rd Avenue and 77th Street, which bore the suggestive name of the Kissing Bridge. The exaction of this kind of toll appears to have been widely practised. Not only bridges, but gates and stiles were penalised for women. The Reverend Mr Burnaby sagely observed that this custom was curious, yet not displeasing. New York had spread out since Irving's birth, but it was still a neighbourly little city of a social turn and disposed to make easy terms with life. In 1809, Thomas Paine had just died in Greenwich Village at what is now number 293 Bleecker Street, where he was often to be seen at the open window reading, with his book in close proximity to a decanter of what appeared to be brandy or rum. It is reported that two clergymen who visited him with the hope of changing his attitude toward Christianity were abruptly dismissed and the housekeeper received orders to bar the door against such visitors. If God does not change his mind, I'm sure no human can, was her sage comment. 
and the author of the Age of Reason was troubled no more. After a stormy passage of 64 days, not lacking in serious perils, Irving landed in New York in the wake of a heavy snowstorm in February 1806, in high spirits and ready for such pleasures as the little town afforded. One of his biographers has described it as a handy city. It was large enough to furnish ample variety of character studies and many opportunities for a good fellowship of an intimate, easy-going sort. There was an air of conviviality about the place, but there was little serious dissipation. It was a very pleasant moment in the growth of the metropolis, which had become, in a quiet provincial way, a town in the special sense in which that word connotes a group of people, numerous enough to constitute a society fond of the same pleasures, interested in local incidents and amusements sufficiently intimate to have formed a code of social standards and manners. In a word, in the New York of Irving's early maturity, as in the London of the time of Steele and Addison, there was an organised society open to clever portraiture and brisk satire, supplying at the same time the material and the audience for local wit and humour. It was easy to know everybody in the society of the town, and easy to get about the place. The tone was not intellectual, though the city never lacked men and women of distinguished ability, and social cultivation. It was a well-bred and hospitable society, with a keen relish for pleasure. There were numberless dinners and suppers, much less costly and elaborate than those of today, and more informal and merry. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story about the earlier days in New York. Until next time, good night.